The title of the message is The Second Coming of Christ. If you'll turn in your Bible to to John chapter 3 for just one moment. John chapter 3. This was our Lord's conversation with Nicodemus. The Pharisee who came to Him wanting to know really about eternal life. It was the conversation Christ had with him. And then we're just we're going to look at a couple verses down in verse 16, John 3, 16 and 17. Jesus says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. <clears throat> For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So what we see here, we're reminded that that Christ's first coming, He didn't come to judge, right? He came to save. That's what He's telling Nicodemus. Christ's first coming was to save. He came, as John the Baptist said, as the, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He came as the suffering servant who the Scriptures describe as one not to... Not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Amen? He gave His life as a ransom for many on the cross. And so before we move on, it's so important to remember that. That that Christ, He didn't come the first time as our judge. He came as our Savior. So that, that is the hope of mankind. That's the hope for all of us in here. And that's the hope, obviously, for anybody who doesn't know Christ uh, because you don't want to meet Christ in His second coming without coming to Him as, as Savior. As he, he came to save the first time. So we know that He gave His life as a ransom for many. Right on the cross is where He paid the penalty for sin. That is our great hope. That's the great hope of humanity. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. That He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and died the death suffer the wrath of God that we deserve to die, that we deserve to be punished with. On the third day, He rose again for our justification. And, and, and so the, the call goes out, even today, because we still live in this time where the call goes out to people everywhere to, to come to Christ. Come and be forgiven for all your sin, past, present, and future. Repent and believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. So that's why He came the first time. The Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But He will come back. Okay, Jesus was referencing His first coming in the conversation He had with Nicodemus. But He will come back not as the gentle Lamb, right? Not as the gentle Lamb of God, but as the, you could really say, as the ferocious lion that... Uh, He's referenced in Revelation 5, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you're turning your Bible back over to Revelation 19 that we just looked at in our Scripture reading, I just want to look at a few, few verses this time that gives us really, really zooms in on the second coming. Because like He told Nicodemus, He came the first time to save. So this is the age of grace where we tell people, Bow your knee to Christ. Because he says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. In this life, we bow to Him and becomes our Savior. But if we wait till that day, if a person waits till that day, he will not be Savior. He will be judge and executioner. Revelation 19, verses 11-16. through John says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. See the difference, guys? This is the second coming. He's not coming to save. When he comes back, he's coming to judge. Now, he's going he's to rescue his bride. Those who have already come to him as Savior, those who have already bowed the knee, we're going to be gathered up with Him, but He is coming to make war the second time. It says in verse 12, His eyes are a flame of fire. That just means 
It's referencing the omniscience of Jesus Christ as the God-man. He sees down into our hearts. He sees our thoughts. He sees our motives. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems. And He has the name written on them, which no one knows except Himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Some people think this is referencing the the blood that He shed upon the cross. Some people think it's referencing the, the blood of His enemies. Um, If we were going through the text, I would probably have a strong opinion, but I'm not sure. His name is called the Word of God. Does that sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh in John chapter 1. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. That's the saints that are in heaven, that are coming back with Him. From His mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's just a really a, a, a good description of a little bit of what's going to happen when he comes back, what he's coming back to do. He's not coming back to save. That's for now. Okay? Come to Christ and be saved, right? Come to Christ and be saved. Wait till that day, it's too late. And so although we're not going through the book of Revelation in, the, in this message, this is going to be a, uh, just a, a broad view, kind of an overhead view of just a second coming. And so we're not going through the book of Revelation, but I, but I do, in, in Revelation 1-3, you can turn there if you want, I just want to reference one verse. In chapter 1, verse 3, there is a promise for us, guys. There is a promise, and it says this. Well, let me say before I read the verse. The, the, the message of the book of Revelation, guys, it's really simple. Wherever, no matter where you stand in your eschatology, as long as, in, as long as it's in the realm of orthodox, the four major views, the, the message of Revelation is this, that Christ conquers. That's the message. The message of Revelation was written to a people in the first century who were under severe persecution. So it's immediately for them and what they were suffering. But it's not just for them. It's for the Christians of all ages. We all face these things down from the last 2,000 years of church history. We all face threats. We all face persecutions. Wicked tyrant leaders have, have come and, they've, and they've, they've risen and they've fallen. The persecution of the church, famines, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, these things have always been happening. So it's not just for the early church, and it's not just for those at the end. Although I think these things will increase. But that's why it's a blessing for the people of God, for those who read this book, because Christ conquers. That's what the message is. It's to comfort the believer. We will go through the book of Revelation at some point. But that's what we need to remember when we read it. And and then even today, I say it's a blessing for us today because we're going to be looking broadly at the coming of Christ. And it should be a comfort to us as the people of God because He conquers, okay? Revelation 1-3, Blessed is He who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near, okay? And the reason it's a blessing, guys, is because Christ conquers the enemies of the church. Okay? In every age. First century down to the 21st century, he conquers these leaders. He delivers his people. Okay? So with that being said, let's look at um, again just a uh, just it's just a one one message, the second coming of Christ. We're going to look at a few of the really through the a few of the things that I saw that stands out in the in the in the coming of Christ that I think most Christians would agree with. And so the theme or the main point, it's on, your, it's on your outline, is this. Jesus Christ will return to this earth physically, visibly, and suddenly to gather the righteous to Himself, to judge the wicked, and to make all things new. These things are guaranteed in Scripture. Okay? These things are guaranteed that we can all agree on in Scripture. So let's look at four things today. His second coming. 
on your outline. Or the, that word that I've got written there, that's, that's the Greek word for His second coming. Perusia, okay? His second coming, His appearing. That's what that word is referencing. His second coming. We're going to look at four things about His second coming. And first of all, we're going to just look at the reality of it, okay? The reality of a second coming. Because there are those out there who try to not deny it. We're not going to look at that text today, but if you think of first or Second Peter 3, it says some of the features of, the, uh, of the, those that will mock. Many in the world mock. It was referencing false teachers, but there are many people who mock the coming of the, the second coming of Christ. He hasn't come back for 2,000 years. But we're going to look at the reality of it. That it is a reality that Christ is coming back. So turn over to Acts chapter 1. That's the verse we're going to bounce off of. That's the text that's on the front of your bulletin. Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 11. But in in chapter 1 leading up to verse 11, this was Christ after instructing His disciples to wait for the promised Holy Spirit that would come. Okay? And that would give them, in verse 8, power, right, to be His witnesses. That's where we get power to be His witnesses is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So He was telling His disciples that, and then He, he then ascended in a cloud out of their sight. And the text says that they were gazing intently into the sky when two men, who were actually two angels in white clothing, stood beside them and said this in verse 11, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. He will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. Literally that phrase, the same way, it means in what manner. The manner that you saw Him leave is how He's going to return. He will physically, He will come physically, beloved, with His same resurrected body. Okay? His same resurrected body. Did you you know that for all eternity, there is a man in heaven right now? The God-man. He is sitting in heaven beside the Father in His resurrected body. We will see Him in His same body that He ascended with. The, The same body, if you remember, in John that He that he told Thomas. You remember Thomas? After his resurrection was doubting. And what did Jesus say? He said, Thomas, look at my hands. Look at my side. Touch me. That body. He said, touch my hands and my side. And what did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. That's the, that's the Jesus that's coming back. In the same body. With the scars on his hands. The scars on his side. The God man. Jesus Christ. So Acts 1, it just speaks about the reality of His coming. Another verse that we can see that just speaks about the reality is John 14.3 when He tells His disciples, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You hear the promise of the Lord? Jesus doesn't lie. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He promises His disciples... He promises us through the inspired Word of God that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. You're going to be with me. Just like He told the thief on the cross, right? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So that's the promise from our Lord. I don't know if any of you guys are, uh, remember Keith Green from the 70s and 80s, early 80s. The late Keith Green. Uh, the, the, I, I call him the piano player, musician, slash preacher. Because he did some preaching as he, would, as he would sing these songs. But he said, he said this about this verse. <laughs> the Bible says, he said, the Bible says that the Lord made all the beauty of this world. He talked about just creation, the birds of the air, and the seas and the mountains. And of course, we think about the whole universe, right? The sun, the moon, the stars, everything. He said, the Lord, the Bible says the Lord made all the beauty of this world in six literal days. And it says He's been preparing a home for us for 2,000 years. And this is what He said next. If this world and all its beauty took six days and that home 
It's taken him 2,000 years. He said, hey man, this is like living in a garbage can compared to what's going on up there. So, Just a fun quote, but, but just the reality, guys, that, that Christ is coming back. He's coming back to receive His own. He's coming back to judge the wicked. And He's coming back to make all things right. A guy by the name of J. Barton Payne, he was an Old Testament scholar, in his comprehensive catalog of prophecies in, a, in, a, in a, a volume called the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecies, he listed 191 prophecies concerning Christ's first coming. Okay? 191 prophecies concerning Christ's first coming that were all literally fulfilled in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. They've already been fulfilled, they're in the Bible. Here's just a here's a few of them, okay? I, I wrote down like five, or I actually already had these. So, so here's five of them, God. This is in reference to his first coming. And I want you to listen. And, and this we're just going to look at a few of, of Christ, his, his birth and his life and his death. And, and just see how precise God is in his, his prophecies about his son in the Old Testament. We can see, for example, in Micah 5:2 exactly where He would be born. Micah 5.2 tells us that, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Okay, Bethlehem was a little bitty place. If any of you guys have been out to our house, you keep going out east on Highway 9, there's a little, I don't even think it's a town, but a little place called Pink. Think of Bethlehem like Pink. <laughs> but, but the Bible talks about it hundreds of years before He came, where He'd be born. In Isaiah 7.14, it tells us hundreds of years before He came how He would be born. He would be born to a virgin. These were fulfilled down in, in the most minute detail. Zechariah, the book we were just read from, in chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, tells us how He would be betrayed. 30 pieces of silver. Okay? Psalm 22 tells us how he would die. Also, Psalm fifty-two and, or uh, Isaiah fifty-two and fifty-three. He would die by crucifixion. Back before crucifixion was even a thing, the Bible tells us these things. Isaiah fifty-three nine tells us how he would be buried. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. There's one hundred ninety-one prophecies that have been that were literally fulfilled about his first coming, and it's been stated. I didn't check, but the source was fairly good. I trust it. So I, I didn't, what I'm saying is I didn't go and, and look and read, but it's been stated that there are, there's more in the Old Testament, more prophecies about His second coming than His first. And that Jesus spoke about His second coming more than He did His death. So this is a big thing that we're looking at today. It hasn't happened yet, has it? But back then, His first coming hasn't happened. But we can look and we can see how God in, in detail fulfilled these prophecies. Only God can know and predict the future, beloved. Okay, That's a very, very, probably the strongest apologetic for the uh, inspiration of Scripture. For it being God-breathed is, the, is fulfilled prophecy. Nobody can argue against it. Okay, And there's hundreds of prophecies that have already been fulfilled. And in the same way, these promises that we have in Scripture that Christ is coming back, you can mark it down. It's going to be fulfilled in detail exactly like the Word of God says. And so, so what's the point of all of it? He's fulfilled these promises, the reality of His first coming, in the same way they will be fulfilled about His second coming. It is a reality. What does that tell us? What is it, what's the implication for us? Are you ready? Okay? Are you ready? That's always the question. When we talk about eschatology, you know, and I'll make that point again and again because it's the point Christ makes again and again. The point of studying the last things, when, when Christ talked about these things, it was always be on alert. Be ready. Not set up your favorite little groups and argue about these things. But be ready. Are you ready? 
So the reality of it is the first thing we see. Secondly, we see the suddenness of it. Turn to Matthew 24. We're going to hang out in Matthew 24 for just a few moments. 24 and 25, mainly 24. The suddenness of it. The suddenness of His second coming. Matthew 24, we're going to look at verses 36 through 39, first of all. And then, and then 42 through 44, and then a couple individual verses. And I'm going to read these texts, and then we'll, I'll say a few things. We're just kind of bouncing around today. Matthew 24, 36 through 39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days... Or I'm sorry, let me back up. I missed, started verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be, or so will the coming of the Son of Man be. See that last race? They didn't understand until it was too late. Verses 42 through 44. Therefore, be on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this very reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not think He will. And then in verse 50, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know. And then chapter 25, verse 13, just emphasizing this same point here. 25, 13, this is at the end of that next parable. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, verse 36 through 39, we see that neither the angels nor, nor Jesus in his humanity, okay, in his humanity, because at certain times he gave up certain prerogatives, privileges of his deity. He never gave up his deity, but at certain times he gave up certain prerogatives of his deity. So, so the angels, nor Christ in His humanity, nor anyone else ever knows the day or the hour. So what does that tell us, guys? The date setters, okay, the, I, I, I just for the life of me, I've never understood them. The date setters are 100% false 100% of the time. When somebody sets a date, you know just the fact that they did that, that they're wrong. Because nobody knows. He's going to come at a time... When the date hasn't been set. They're 100% false. Guaranteed. Also in that verse, he references Noah. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, right? They were, they were, they were in the days before the flood, what were they doing? They were just living life. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Second Peter, Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he was building and he was preaching. Building and preaching for 120 years. But they were not concerned. They were unconcerned. They were comfortable. They were content in their everyday living. Being warned that judgment is going to come upon them. Now these things they were doing right, eating, drinking, Marriage, these are not bad things in and of themselves, are they not? They're not bad at all. But what does the Scripture tell us even about these things? Do all of these things, whether you eat or whether you drink, whether you get married, do it all to the glory of God. This is a picture of not doing it to the glory of God. They're thinking about themselves. These things that are gifts from God became distractions for these people. And the flood of God's wrath came and swept them away. We can so easily, or not, I don't even say we as Christians, but a description of the world. Really a description of the world, guys. Of how, like these, like these people in Noah's day, and like people in our day, 
Who you, who you warn that, that death is coming, that Christ is coming, that judgment is coming, but they seem to care less. 1 John 5, 19, John tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And I think I've shared that before, but that text just means that that, that picture, picture the evil one, picture the devil, picture Satan sitting in his rocking chair rocking the world to sleep. And all the while, judgment's approaching. Judgment's approaching. Judgment's approaching. And that's what's going on here. And so what is Jesus trying to communicate in these texts that we just read from Matthew 24 and 25? What's He trying to communicate? Is He telling us you need to get out your charts and you need to, you need to argue about your eschatology? No, that has nothing to do with it. He is telling these, these parables and these straightforward teachings so that people will be ready. Be ready. Be alert. Be prepared. Be watchful. That's the message of these texts. 1 Thessalonians. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Over there after Colossians. We're going to see a little, a little bit more similar language. And these are just a sample of texts, guys. There, there, there could be lots more. I know we could turn to Peter and look at 2 Peter. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-4. Paul says this, For ye yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, listen to this language, will come just like a thief in the night. He, must, he was definitely influenced by, by Christ's teaching. He says, while they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon, them, come upon them suddenly, like labor pains. I've never had labor pains, but I've heard they can come suddenly. They're going to come suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. So we have more thief language here is what we have. The same as Matthew 24. We have more thief language. What's the significance of the whole coming like a thief, guys? I don't think it's very difficult to understand, guys. The thief is not going to give you a call on your cell phone. The thief is not going to write you a letter. The thief is not going to send the letter to you in the mail and say, I'm coming tomorrow evening. Hide your valuables. No, he's not. By and large, right? At least if he's a good thief, if he's a smart thief, generally the thief will find us unprepared. That's the language here. He's going to come when the majority of the world are unprepared. They're not ready. They're going to be like those in the day of Noah. Just living their life. Maybe God... Maybe God causes them to hear a sermon on the radio. Not interested. Maybe God causes them to hear a street preacher. Nah, not interested. Maybe, maybe a friend of theirs sits down with them over coffee and shares the good news of Christ. Not interested. And then boom, judgment's coming. It's going to happen when people are not prepared. Now the thief language, beloved, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but the thief language is true with respect to unbelievers, not believers. Okay? By and large. Believers are not in darkness. Okay? Believers are not in darkness. I want you to be encouraged by this. Really, really we can look at this two different ways. We're prepared, the believer is prepared, because why? Why? We've bowed the knee to Christ. It's the people who have not bowed the knee to Christ are going to be... It's going to be the worst nightmare ever if Christ comes back and you're not ready because it's over after that. For the person who's not prepared, it will be like a thief. Totally unexpected. Living life. To the fear of all fears, the horror of all horrors, what those Christians told me was true. 
And now it's too late. No, but for the believer, you are prepared. You have bowed. You have been forgiven. You have been redeemed. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. And also, you're not ignorant of these things, right? You're not ignorant of these things. Look at, listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have come into the light. We're no longer in darkness. What does he say? What does he say in that text I just read in verse 4? But brethren, you brethren, you're not in darkness. The day will not overtake you like a thief. We've passed out of darkness. We've come into the marvelous light. And we look forward to that day when Christ comes. No, we don't know when it's going to happen. But we're not going to be totally caught off guard because we know He's coming back. If He were to come back today, we wouldn't be caught. We wouldn't be caught like a thief in the night. We say, He's finally come. He's finally come. Listen to Charles Spurgeon speak to this. He says, Be ready, servant of Christ, for your Master comes suddenly when an ungodly world least expects Him. When they least expect it, He's going to come. When they're, when they're living life. But neglecting such a great salvation, He's going to come. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But as the people of God, we're ready. We're waiting. But unbelievers are still in darkness. What, is that? what does it mean to be in darkness? It means the darkness of sin and unbelief. Destruction will come on them suddenly. Suddenly. For that generation who's alive in that day. So we have seen the reality of a second coming. We have seen the suddenness of a second coming. There's not going to be an announcement from heaven, I'm coming tomorrow. Get right. No, He's going to come. The warnings are now. Thirdly, the universal knowledge of it. The universal knowledge of it just meaning that everybody will see it. I don't have any of these verses referenced, but you know the verses where Christ says, hey, somebody comes to you and say they're the Christ, don't listen to them. Guys, when Christ comes back, everybody will know it. Everybody will know it. First of all, Luke chapter 21. Look at a few verses here. Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, starting in verse 25. I'm going to read three verses here. 25 through 27. So, so these first few verses, you can just see that everybody will know it by way of what's going on in the world. Very visible things. <clears throat> there will be signs and moon, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. So just these signs that are going on, I don't know exactly. You know how literal these things are, but these are big things that's going to happen at his return. Verse 26 men fainting from fear at the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Before we move on, before we move, or, or yeah, before we move on, uh, look down at verse thirty-five. I almost forgot that verse because this is a clear reference to this, this universal knowledge here. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. This is not going to be a hidden secret thing. It's going to be visible for all to see. But look at that verse. Look at that verse twenty-six again. Before we move on, before we look at another verse where, where it's it, it's really clear on everybody will know this when it happens. Look at verse twenty-six. Men fainting from fear at the expectation of the things which are coming. Those who are not ready when they see it happening, 
There's no fear in this world now that men may fear that will even come close to that day. The terror. They're going to know what's happening. Listen to Revelation 6, 15 and 16. You can mark it down, but I'm going to read it. Revelation 6, 15 and 16. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders. Okay, listen. These are, these are the most powerful. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. You hear the fear in that? Beloved people may not be in fear now and in dread now, which they need to be, but they will be on that day. They will be on that day instantly. These people are seeking death rather than to face the one who sits on the throne and his lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. They would, they're, they're rocks fall on us. You know what's so irrational about that? When these, when these men see what's happening, in verse 26 in Luke that we looked at, they grow faint with fear when they realize that Christ is, he, that it's over, and they just, they have a death wish. They want to die rather than face him. But what does the Bible tell us? It's been appointed for a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. They can't escape him. They will not escape standing before Jesus Christ. Most of us won't be here when He comes back, right? We'll die first. But either way, we all have an appointment to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the message is always that we have on our cross that we take out. Are you ready? Are you ready? Get ready. Be alert. And then Revelation 1.7 says this, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. You, hear that? you see that universal knowledge. Everybody's going to see it. You don't have to worry about some guy coming and telling you he's the Messiah and come join his religious gang. Everybody will know when Christ comes back. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Now we could get into how literal this is. Everyone who pierced Him, does that mean... Does that mean the Jews and the Romans? Yeah, probably. But, I, but think about this, guys. Who was He pierced for? He was pierced for our transgressions. And even... And even maybe, not even maybe not even that specific meaning, meaning the church, but think of sinful humanity. Okay? There, there's a sense. It's because of our sin, He was upon the cross. Yes, God the Father placed Him there. God the Father crushed Him there. It was God's will before the foundation of the world. But why was it He was there? He was pierced for our transgressions. Sinful humanity will see Him. Everybody will see Him. The One who was pierced. The One whom many people heard about over and over again. He he died for sinners and there He is. And it's too late. They're going to see Him. And it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Make no mistake, this is not all mourning over their sin. Okay? I think all will mourn. The the righteous, okay? Those who are righteous, who have mourned over their sin, will on that day, will mourn with tears of joy. He's here. He's here. He has come to receive us. But the unrepentant who refuse to mourn over their sin, will on that day, they will mourn over their own fate. That's what's going on here. They will faint with fear. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him because they know this is the One. The Creator. The One who came. The One whom people warned us about. And it's true. 
And my fate is sealed. Terror of terrors. And then fourthly and lastly, the finality of it. The finality of it. Matthew chapter 25. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. We'll see the finality of the coming of Christ. Meaning, there's no second chance. Just like there's no second chance after death. There's no second chance when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth, guys. It is over. It is finished. Human history will be wrapped up as we know it. Matthew 25, we're going to read verses 31 through 46. Now, if you're not familiar with this passage, you guys, this is the passage of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Now, what I don't want you to do, I don't want you to get distracted by some of the language in here because somebody within a within maybe a, 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 a cult, a Christian cult who teaches salvation by works, they'll take a passage like this and they'll say, see, we're, we're right with God because of those things we do. That's not the point of the passage. The Bible tells us clearly that, that we are saved by God's grace through faith, not of ourselves, unto good works. So the, these passages, it's describing the righteous, those who are saved, and and what will be a result, the, the, the works they perform because they're saved. That's all it's describing. This is not even speaking about how a person is justified. So don't let that distract you. The point is, is there's two groups of people in the world. The righteous and the unrighteous. The saved and the lost. I guess I should be doing this. This is the right. The righteous and the unrighteous. The sheep and the goats. The saved and the lost. Those who are in light, those who are in darkness. So that's all that's going on here. This is the final judgment, okay? 31 through 46, Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. Okay, I want to pause just for a minute. All the nations, beloved. Everybody alive during that time, everybody who's lived before, this is the judgment. Everybody will be there. Those who have already died will be resurrected. Both the saved and the lost, we will receive resurrected bodies. That's not implied in this text, but in other places. So this is there, there's not going to be anybody missing at this judgment. Okay? There's not multiple final judgments. There's one final judgment. This is it right here. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. The King, who is Jesus Christ, will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it unto me. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is similar language, beloved, as Matthew 7, right? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, what is he going to say? Depart from me. It's all the same day. It's just a different account of it. This is that final day. Verse 42, For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 
And here's the finality of it, guys. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And if you look at back up in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, judgment's coming. Now, none of us know exactly what that's going to look out, how it's going to play out, but He's coming back and He's judging the wicked. And then it is over. It wraps up history. Everyone, again, will be there on that day. This is the end of human history as we know it. This is the end of what, of what Paul says. Or really the New Testament says many times, but I think of Galatians 1, of speaking about this evil present age that Christ came to rescue us from. This is the end of that, this age that we're in now. The Bible calls this the present age. It calls it an evil age. It's temporary. It ends at Christ's return. And then we enter the age to come. That's eternal. This is when it all ends, guys. This is the finality of it. No second chances. And so again, what's the point of all this? What is the point of, of a message like this, of a text like this that we're looking at? To argue? To get on Facebook and argue? You know, you can get your own little eschatology group and just argue and argue and argue. I really get nauseated at it. The point, I'll just say this, Christ's eschatology, when you see Him speaking about these things, He had a simple point. Be ready. Be alert. These things are coming. Just Hey, just in the text that we looked at today, which is just a sample. Matthew 24, 42. What do we see? Therefore, be on the alert. That's the application. Be on the alert. Verse 44. You also must be ready. 25, 13. Be on the alert. And that's always the reason for these kind of texts in the Scripture. So in closing... Really by way of a little more application. I want to say a couple things. First to us as believers. For the believer, guys. What, what can you take, not just from this message, but, but when you see things about eschatology, the study of the end, but when you see things about the coming of Christ, what, what should it mean for us as believers? For your, for your everyday life? Well, I think a couple... Really important things. So, so for you as, as Christ's child, as, his, as a believer, as a Christian, our expectation and anticipation, first of all, you should have an expectation and you should have an anticipation of His coming. But our expectation and anticipation of His second coming, first of all, it's our hope as believers. That's our hope. And secondly, it purifies us. And we're going to, we'll look at a couple texts here to see these things. First, turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. See, the second coming of Christ for a believer is nothing that we should dread. It's fearful language if you're not ready. If you're still in your sins and you're living in rebellion towards God, it should terrify you. Although sin is so deceptive, many people, it doesn't. They're like the people in the days of Noah. Titus 2, first of all, let's read 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. So this language of hope and purification is just intermingled in this text, if you see it. That in verse 14, we're looking for that blessed hope, which is what? The appearing 
of the glory of our great and Savior Jesus Christ. Why is that such a hope for us? In verse 14, because it's, it's Him who gave Himself to redeem us. We're redeemed. We're redeemed from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself. And then even the, the, the text above it in, in verse 11 and 12, talking about this grace of God has appeared. Really, it's speaking of Christ. He has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So you can see that when we set our hope on Christ and His second coming, first of all, it's our great hope. Secondly, that there's a, there's a purification that goes on. Hope you guys can see that. And really, this next, this next text that we're going to look at is even clearer. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, is really, really clear on these two points. <clears throat> so that hope, literally, it's that hope that we have in a second coming that purifies us. If you're thinking about His second coming, beloved, it's going to purify you. You're going to want to, 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 to live in a way. You're going to be motivated to live in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Every, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So when we have our hope fixed upon Christ who is going to come back and make all things right, it naturally purifies us. We're having our mind... What does the Bible say? Set your mind on Christ. Set your mind on things above. And part of that is His return. There's a purification process that comes with it. <clears throat> and Wayne Grudem says this in a systematic theology to really make this point. He says, To some extent then, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our lives at the moment. So the degree to which we actually think about these things in the return of Christ is a measure of our spiritual condition at the moment. So I would just ask you, how much do you long for His return? That's the question we must ask. Because the Bible says when we long for His return, when we anticipate His return, when we have hope in His return, it's going to purify us. God's going to use it in purifying us and sanctifying us. And it's going to be our great hope. So that's how to apply the second coming of Christ to your life as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ. It should be your great hope. You should long for it. And it should be a dread for those who are lost. I'm going to close in 2 Thessalonians. And I say should be if a person's in their right mind, it should terrify them. But we know that we read about the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and people are asleep. They're spiritually asleep. Not aware of what's coming. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10 through 10 says this, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Which that verse right there, guys... That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. That God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict His people. Okay? And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. You see, that's the third time we've looked at the return of Christ. And what is the, who does the Bible say is with Him? His angels. It's all talking about the same event. The day when Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. So I would say that if there's any here, if there's any who would hear this message later, maybe you don't dread the coming of Jesus Christ, but you will on that day. That should be the appropriate response. Because when He comes back, it's too late. It's too late. He will judge you and you will die in your sin. But look what it says in verse 10, that text we just read. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. We're going to marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ. The One who saved us from the penalty of sin. The One who set us free from sin, from the grave, from hell. We're going to marvel. And so, that could be a person today who is lost. They're hopeless. They're living in rebellion towards Christ. You don't have to dread that day. You can be one of those who marvel at His coming. But the Bible calls you to repent and to believe today. While it is called today, right? Behold, now is the day of salvation. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back tonight. He could come back in a hundred years, a thousand years. We don't know. But this is my last, my last word just for us as believers. Even the, even the, the, even the, 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 the urgency in Christ to be ready, that even applies to us. Even if you're already saved. But just to be ready. I would just encourage you to think about these texts. To, to, to think about the, the fact that this is our hope. And if we fix our mind on that and the reality of it, that when Christ comes back, that everything that's wrong in this world will be made right. The new heavens and the new earth, all of the, all of the injustice and all of the evil, He will deal with that. And we will be with Him forever. So, so in that sense, guys, be ready for that day. We don't want to... It doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation, but you don't want to be... You don't want to be caught just in embarrassment, if you know what I mean. Just really not living for Christ and He comes back and you're just kind of, you're just kind of wasting your life. Be ready. That applies to His church as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Lord. We thank You for sending Him, Lord, in the womb of a virgin be born of a virgin, conceived by the Spirit. He came into this world, the very world that He created. He suffered at the hands of godless men and was nailed to a cross for our salvation. He rose from the dead for our justification. and He sits at Your right hand right now. Father, thank You for sending Him. Thank You for loving us so much that You sent Your only begotten Son. Father, what a gift. Father, thank You, Lord, that one day He's going to return just like He said. Just like Your Word has promised, He will return. And Lord, I just pray for us, Lord, as individuals, as a church, God, that we will, that we will celebrate that. When we think about it, it'll, it'll, it'll produce hope in us. And that if it doesn't produce hope, Lord, that we would ask ourselves why. But Lord, I just pray that that hope, God, would, would purify us as a, as a as a church and as individuals, husbands, wives, individuals. God, that we would live a life, Lord, that's pleasing to You because it's, it's for Your Son. It's in the power of the Spirit. It's, it's through faith in Your Son. And we know that He, he lived the life that we can never live, God. So we know that we sin every day, Lord, but that He was perfect in our place. And Father, my prayer for our church, Lord, is that our our greatest hope, our greatest desire would just to be um, live a life of, of um, faith and trust in Christ 
and our obedience will come from and that our obedience would come from that our love for Jesus Christ what he's done for us and what he will do so father we thank you lord we want to worship you lord as we remember what he did for us on the cross as we partake of the lord's supper together father we we love you and we praise you for who you are and what you've done in Christ's name amen